Uh, welcome. Good to have you here today on this uh, Martin Luther King weekend. So, a couple months ago, we had some friends over, and uh, he is a rather accomplished academic, and I, uh, I had been given a book that week. I had not looked at it. I'd been hearing about the book, hadn't, uh, uh, didn't know much about it, and then somebody gave me the book. And so I asked him, I said, are you familiar with this book or this author? And he said, no. And uh, I said, well, it was given to me today, and I'm just trying to, you know, place it. I'm trying to figure out who this person is and what they're going to say. He goes, do you have the book? And I said, well, I do. So I went up to my office, and I got it, came back down, and I handed him the book. And he took it, and he sort of looked at it while we're talking, and he sort of, you know, skims the back and looks at the publisher, and then he, he opens it, and he reads a paragraph, and then he goes to the table of contents, and he goes, Oh, well, I mean, you see where it's going. And then he, and then he read like the end of the first, read the conclusion at the end of the first uh, chapter. And then he goes to the very back, to the uh, indices. And at this point, I know what he's doing because I read Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. And in the book, How to Read a Book, Adler talks about how you can spend, you know, five minutes of the book and figure out whether or not it's worth reading. But that's for Mortimer Adler and other people who are brilliant to say. Uh, it takes me about five hours to figure it out. So then he's skimming the indices, and then he goes, oh, okay, well. And then he opens it up, and he looks, he goes, yeah, and he hands it back to me. He goes, page 153 to probably 158, that'll tell you what it's all about. That's sort of the hinge point of the book. And he's going to say this. And he hands it to me, and I'm, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, you just did that in, while we were talking, you figured this book out, and you told me exactly where I've got to go to read just a few pages and know what it's like. Again, I can do that. It just takes me like five hours to do that, and he did it while talking to me in five minutes. So I share that because uh, it was interesting and impressive. I share that also because he could not do that with this book. Okay, so this, this book is unique. Again, you know, 40 different authors over 1,400 years, 66 books, three continents, three different languages, all these different genres, and it's just not that easy to sort of figure out where it's going. He could not do with this book what he did with that other book. But if he could, he would hand it back to me and say, go to the second half of John. That's where everything pivots. So that's where we're at. We're in this series called The Life, and we're looking at the last half of John's gospel. So we're looking there, and, and arguably he could have said, go to the last part of, of any of the gospels. But we're looking there because this is where everything comes together. So the Old Testament points to the New Testament. The New Testament points to the Gospels. The Gospels point to the last week of Christ's life. And the last week of Christ's life point to the Friday through Sunday events. All right? That's the hinge point. That's where everything comes together. And so uh, we're not at the Friday to Sunday you know, corner of that, but we are in the last week of Christ's life. And it is the hinge point where all kinds of different storylines come together. So last week, 
We were in John uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 20 through 26, which set this up. And so that is happening right after the triumphal entry. So Jesus is now paraded into Jerusalem, timing his arrival for the Passover festival. So the Passover festival is the big holiday for the Jews. The biggest holiday, it's a combination of the 4th of July and Christmas and a few other things. It's a week long, and it, is, it has been going on for over a thousand years. And, and what Jesus does is show up at the time of the Passover because he claims that the Passover was always about him. So the Passover was the event where when the Jews are uh, living in slavery to the Egyptians, uh, they, they, they cry out, God hears their cry, sends Moses, Moses is the liberator, and you've got a variety of things that happen, and then you get the, the ten plagues, right? So the first nine plagues are to try and get Pharaoh's attention, and then the tenth plague is where the angel of death is going to come by and claim the firstborn in every family. But the, but the way that they could avoid losing the firstborn male in their families is if they took uh, a lamb, uh, an innocent, unblemished, perfect, one-year-old male lamb, and killed it according to certain protocols, careful not to break any of the bones. And then they took the blood of the lamb and they painted over their doorposts so the angel of death would know when it came by, oh, an innocent third party has already died so the guilty people can go free. This is the start of, of a, it's not exactly the perfect start, but it's very early in the whole development of the sacrificial system, which is going to go through the entire Old Testament. And, and it is driving home two points. One, sin is a capital offense. When we sin, we deserve to die. But, two, an innocent third party can die so the guilty people can go free. And this event would be rehearsed over and over in a variety of different ways. This, this, these two points are going to be drilled home through the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And it, it has this big culmination on the Passover. And Jesus shows up marching into Jerusalem at exactly the time that the Jews were instructed to bring the lambs into Jerusalem because what he is claiming is he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that what they have been doing for the last thousand years was all just foreshadowing him. It was always pointing ahead to what he was going to do. And so uh, John the Baptist will sort of reaffirm this when he sees Jesus the first time. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' claim to be God, to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, is to be the Lamb of God. It's to be the place, it's to be the, the culmination of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. He is timing his arrival to drive home that point. So, we are in John chapter 13, and, and all kinds of things are happening in this final week. It's it sort of pulling together. Again, all these loose ends, all these storylines, everything is coming together in this final week. And the, and the real estate here is incredibly important. And so uh, <clears throat> we're going to see 
that during this week, Jesus is going to start to uh, focus his attention from God so loved the world, John 3.16, and, and the word world there is a big sort of cosmic term, God loved all people, God loved all of his creation. Now we're going to see in the final week that Jesus is really going to focus down, drill down on his, uh, his, his disciples. We're going to see that he is going to be reinforcing key points, such as the points about love and service and mission. We're going to see that he is going to deftly navigate the, all the power dynamics that are going on uh, at that particular moment. So we pick up now John chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that uh, the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. So again, last week we saw that these people came, uh, some Gentiles, uh, Greeks in particular came to Philip. Philip went to Andrew, Andrew went to Jesus, and when when Andrew went to Jesus, Jesus' response was to say, game time. Uh, The time has come, my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this, I said, this is significant because all, the, all up until this point, whenever somebody would talk to Jesus, he would say, it's not my time. <laughs> it's not my time. It's, I'm not ready yet. This isn't the moment. And now we get this so, seemingly sort of innocent thing. Hey, Jesus, there's some people who want to talk to you. And his response is to say, this is it. Here we go. Uh, it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is just, I think, a point that's that's just noting how uh, carefully and thoughtfully and practically Jesus cares for people. There's a a line, I I honestly don't think that this was Charles Schultz, uh, the Peanuts cartoon guy that said, uh, humanity I love, it's people I can't stand. Uh, I thought he was quoting somebody else, but after a number of Google searches and when everybody, everybody is giving credit to Charles Schultz, I'll just say, that's not Jesus. It's not that he just theoretically loves people. He actually loves and cares for people. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So, Cue the uh, music in a minor key. Judas has already been compromised. He's not told the authorities uh, where Jesus is. And that's what the authorities lack. They don't, I mean, it's, we, we got to climb back in time and imagine that these authorities have been hearing about Jesus for the last three years. But they don't know what he looks like, right? Because there's no pictures that have been posted. There's no social media. There's no Jerusalem press. There's a, so, they need somebody to identify him. And Jerusalem would swell with people during the Passover. The, the, some historians say, uh, you know, two million people would come into Jerusalem. I, I've been to Jerusalem uh, several times. I cannot imagine that the number was that big. But it wouldn't take more than a few hundred thousand to completely overwhelm the old part of Jerusalem. And so then the question that the authorities would have if they wanted to arrest Jesus is, where is he? And they'd want to get him and arrest him away from the crowds. Because if, if the crowds see it happening, uh, they would be at risk of, of the crowds turning against them. And the Romans were, were brutal, but there weren't that many Romans posted there. And so they need somebody to tell them 
who Jesus is and where they can find him away from the crowds. So Judas has, is, is determined he's going to be this person, but he's not yet betrayed him. Um, verse 2, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So one of the questions that we ask, one of the questions that Christian theologians have wrestled with for years and years is, is uh, what did Jesus know and when did he know it? So Jesus is uh, the, the one person with two natures. So the claim, right, what John teaches us, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Jesus pre-exists the incarnation. The baby Jesus born in a manger Right? It is an act of profound humiliation because he has now humbled himself and taken on human form while somehow remaining God. He was God, he created everything, and now he comes down to earth as an infant. And, and this is, the, we refer to this as the, the hypostatic union, the union of two aspects, of, of two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man joining together in one person. We know from Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. So he comes as a baby and he grows up. And it says he grows in wisdom. So his understanding of who he is grows over time. But we don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't really know how to think about this. And so there's, we get two things to, to sort of hold on to. The Chalcedonian definition gets added to the Nicene Creed where they talk about how you talk about the two natures of Christ. But it doesn't tell us how they work. It just tells us, don't say this. It's not that Jesus is God at one moment and then he's man at another moment. It's not that Jesus is half God, half man. It's not that Jesus is God in a man's body. I mean, they, they sort of go through all these things and they go, it's none of those. Don't say that. But, but they can't really say, we can't really understand what it is. And that leads to the other big statement, which is that uh, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. We just, we're not going to be able to understand perfectly the nature of God. But all that to say, at this moment, we're told, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knows the plan. Jesus knows he now has power and authority. He can do what he wants. He knows he's going to die. He's been telling people that for a while now. He knows he's going to die and he's going to return to God the Father. So Jesus knows these things. Um, he, Jesus knows that the Father put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now in the margins, it's worth just thinking for a second about this suggestion that he has all power. So I, I, I went digging on power, reading about power uh, in preparation for this talk, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating field, people writing about high power and low power and power distance and all the different kinds of power that we have and all the different dynamics of, of how power works. And and it's all a little bit 
overwhelming and confusing, but uh, I think you know at one hand what power is, so some ability to force your way to get things done, some, some energy. The critical thing I think for us to understand when it comes to power is that most of us don't handle it well. Power is classically referred to as one of the character assassins. Money, sex, and power are the three things that tend to be really difficult for us to stay on top of. So uh, you, you can think of these things like fire. Uh, the, the, the greater the potential for good, the greater the potential for harm. Right? So when we talk about fire, fire can heat our house, fire can make food, and fire can burn everything down. We can say the same kinds of things about sex. Sex has the ability to, to create intimacy and to create bond, and it can be wonderful. It can lead to babies, but sex can also be, lead to the objectification of people, leads to rape, it leads to all kinds of other challenges. Money. Money is, 1 Timothy 6 does not say that money is the, is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of trouble. And so money has the ability uh, to be used for good, but it has the ability to be used for bad. The challenge is most of us have a hard time mastering these character assassins. Very famously, Lord Acton is the one who said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Now, by the way, Lord Acton was wrong because the only one who's got absolute power is Jesus, <laughs> And he's not corrupted by it. But the rest of us have a hard time navigating whatever power we have. This, by the way, is behind the whole Tolkien idea of a ring, uh, the ring of power, one ring to rule the world. But the problem with the ring is, right, nobody can control it, nobody can handle it. And so uh, it corrupts whoever gets it. And Frodo is compromised, is killed by the ring. And he increasingly, Gollum has been, was a hobbit who'd been completely corrupted by the ring. The ring has this power and it destroys. He's, Tolkien is making that point about power. So, moving on, verse 4. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, um, I don't think yet I have embarrassed myself about my granddaughter, and just sort of going all, you know, uh, ooh and ah about my granddaughter, uh, well, let me say it this way. I don't think I've embarrassed myself in front of you yet. I had, uh, Sherry's uh, visiting her mom out of town, and I had some guys over for, uh, for dinner last night. And I asked the question at one point, so when's, when's the last time you have been captivated by beauty? When's the last time the beauty just stopped you in your tracks? And you're like, oh my goodness, this is so beautiful. And uh, I, I've heard that question asked in, a, in another setting, and so I was just parroting it last night. Leads to more profitable conversation than just talking about football and politics and whatever else. So, uh, and it, when I'm asked that question, I go, oh, it's my granddaughter, right? I mean, it's, and people can be mesmerized, supposedly, by three things, can just stare for hours and hours, three things, 
fire, water, and babies. And I'm sort of a little mystified by like, yeah, I don't need to do anything except stare at this little girl. And I'll say this, she has very cute feet. But that's partly because they're very small and they've never been used, right? I mean, she's six months old. She's barely sit up. She's not walking on them. Feet are not generally our best feature. Go back to the first century when you had no paved roads, animals on the roads, so you've got lots of just waste on the roads, open-toed sandals, no running water, they're not cute little six-month-old girl feet. Feet are, they're bad. They're dirty. They were, they, were, they were offensive. And they were so offensive that you had to have your feet washed before you would sit down for a meal. And it was considered, not according to the Bible, but uh, so not like the book of Leviticus where we get all these priestly rules, but the Jewish rabbis had issued a proclamation saying, no Jewish servant could ever be expected to wash anybody's feet because it was just beneath the Jews to wash feet. So Jesus gets up and puts this towel around him, takes off his garment, wraps it around, and then kneels down and starts to wash the feet of his disciples. This is, this is unthinkable in, on the one hand for this to happen. We don't have a modern equivalent to this, but I think the closest we could get would be cleaning a public restroom. Somebody has to do it. Like, it has to get done or it's bad for everybody. But nobody wants to be the person that is uh, tasked with cleaning a public restroom. And yet, Jesus is now volunteering. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, <laughs> you're going to wash my feet? Like, uh, this is a bad plan. This can't be happening. Uh, some, by the way, make a lot of the parallel of Jesus uh, stepping down to wash their feet in, in tying it to Philippians chapter 2, this passage where Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but emptied himself. And how Jesus comes down to earth. So he steps down from heaven and comes down to earth. Jesus steps down from the table and gets down on his knees to wash the feet. And Jesus takes off his outer garment. So he takes off the glory of God, whatever it is that he's sort of put in this blind trust in order to show up as a baby. And then he begins to serve, which is, of course, what he does. And then later he will return. Jesus will return to his seat, just as at the end of Philippians chapter 2, Jesus will go back to heaven and God will exalt him. So there's a lot of meditations that you can read about this. But, it's, but I don't want to miss the practical, this happened, and this is what Jesus was doing. He comes to Simon Peter, and uh, Simon replies, um, look, you can't do this. You do not realize now what I'm doing, Jesus responds, but later you will understand. Okay, which is true. They, the disciples generally don't understand what's going on most of the time. Uh, in their defense, it's a whole lot easier to understand it uh, the third or fourth time you read it or after the resurrection. A lot of things start to make more sense. Um, but Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you will have no part with me. 
Now the question that we ought to ask is, why doesn't Peter want Jesus to wash his feet? Could be that he's feeling uh, embarrassed. Uh, could be that he's feeling unworthy. It uh, could be that he's realizing that he should be washing Jesus' feet. Uh, it could be that he's embarrassed for Jesus, right? Because it's really hard to watch somebody you love be humbled or humiliated. And it could be that he just doesn't, he doesn't want to see that. It could be that uh, he just doesn't want to be served because being the one that's helped is a lot harder than being the one that's helping, right? So we all want to be the strong one. We want to be the one in control. We want to be the one that could help somebody else. It's really hard for the person that is struggling to accept help because it's just, it's creating this pecking order. It's creating, I'm needy, you're not. I don't want to be that. I remember, I remember uh, in the hospital coming out after the stroke, laying there, I can't, you know, I'm choking all the time on my own saliva and Sherry keeps rolling me over so I can spit into this cup. And I, I'm apologizing one time and I said, I don't, I, I said, I'm sorry, you didn't, you didn't sign up for this. And she says, oh, I think I did sign up for this, you know. And I said, but I can do nothing for you. I'm nothing but needs. I'm nothing but, I'm making these demands. I can do nothing for you. She goes, right, I get that. And I said, uh, yeah, I don't like this. And she goes, yeah, Mike, this is grace, right? And you've never really understood it. <laughs> Theoretically, you get it. But you, you don't really understand what it's like to receive when you cannot do anything. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't, like, I don't like this. She said, yeah, no, I, I know you don't like it. But uh, it's where you're at. And one of the things I end up saying to people when I visit them in the hospital, and, if, and you know, the joke is sort of, if I visit you in the hospital, you're really sick. Like, you, you don't want to see me show up at the hospital. Your small group, other people on staff, oh, good, I'm getting out. Woodruff shows up, oh, no. Like, what are they not telling me? So you're usually in pretty bad shape if I show up. And, but one of the things that I say is, okay, now you're going to have to let people help you. And almost always people will say, yeah, that's a problem. I don't want that. I don't want the attention. And I go, look, there's all these people in your small group. There's all these people who want to bring meals. They want to do whatever. You got to let them do something, right? But what, what we want to do is we just want to hide. If we need something, we want to take care of our own needs or pay for it and have somebody that we're in. We want to remain in control. So I think that's part of it. But perhaps an even bigger thing is Peter doesn't want to see Jesus humiliated. Peter doesn't want to see Jesus serve because Peter's reputation is tied to Jesus. Right? I mean, Peter loves being the intern with the guy who's riding in and everybody in all of Jerusalem is saying, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, this is the guy. Peter likes going, yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> now suddenly Jesus is, is cleaning public restrooms and, and Peter's like, no, Jesus, you don't want to do this. This is not what you should be doing because you are devaluing my internship. This is not going to be as good for me. And, and Jesus uh, sort of gets it because, look, he's going to say, 
You know, the servant is never greater than the master. <laughs> I'm telling you, Peter, you got to understand how this is going to work. So, um, <clears throat> verse 9, then uh, Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So, uh, leave it to Peter to sort of just completely flip the script uh, because he's just sort of impetuous and he's bouncing all over the place. Uh, this reminds me, I was in a meeting, this is 15 years ago, and it was a, it was a good meeting, but it was tense. We, we, there was a strong disagreement between me and a, another person about what we should do. And uh, the other person was very passionate. It was sort of their MO, they were very, often very passionate about whatever they were talking about. And we disagreed you know, sort of 180 degrees on what we ought to be doing. And, and uh, in the middle of, like, his argument about what we should be doing, he completely switched his sides. And then he is blaming me for holding his position. And so for a while, I'm just looking around going, I am not understanding where you're going. And then I start looking at the other people in the room like, am I not getting this or are you hearing this? And there was this guy, uh, one of the elders in the church, who sort of leans his chair back and gets out and he goes behind the guy and he looks at me and he's like, like this, like saying, Woodruff, do not say anything. Like, do not point this out. You are being given what you want. Do not point out that he has completely flipped positions. But that's what Peter is doing. That's what it reminds me of. Now he's like, don't wash my feet. Now he's going, oh yeah, okay, uh, I'll sign up for anything. Some look at this and say that uh, Christ's response when he says those who have been bathed need only to wash their feet, their whole body is clean, that this is saying those who have been baptized only need to confess their sin. Um, okay, I, I believe that. Uh, but I don't think we draw, draw doctrine from passages like this about things like baptism. I, I, I wouldn't go there. Uh, I do think those who follow Christ need to be baptized, and we've got this baptism coming up. If you've not been baptized and you are a Christ follower, then you need to talk to the campus pastor and get signed up for that. So... Um, and you are clean, though not every one of you, Jesus says. He knew who was going to betray him, uh, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. Again, this is, this is Judas. Judas, interestingly, you could do a little study on power here, right? Because Judas has got some power, and he's multiplied his power by keeping it secret. Like, if you don't let on the power that you've got, you've got a little bit more power. Jesus, has, who's got all power, is going to let Judas betray him. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. Again, no, they do not understand this. Uh, we've read enough about the disciples to know that it's going to be much later that they begin to understand what's going on. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Um, so Jesus will always, uh, people think of Jesus as humble because he serves, he washes people's feet, he goes to the end of the line, he doesn't use his power for himself. But Jesus is always claiming to be Lord, to be King, to be God, to be Savior. There's nothing humble about Jesus' recognition of his identity. And he says it here, you call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, that's what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So, um, look, it's pretty obvious on um, Martin Luther King weekend, King read this passage. <laughs> Mother Teresa read this passage. I mean, there's people that you know have read this passage. Like, okay, I'm going to serve. So, look, there's a lot here that we could unpack. We could look at Christ's humility. I think that that's an important thing. And you got to understand, in, in, the, in the Greco-Roman world, nobody was doing the kinds of things that Jesus does here. They thought humility was bad. Like, to say to somebody that they were humble was a bad thing. The leaders in the Roman and the Greek world, it's Caesar claiming to be God. It's Herod the Great killing anybody who comes, gets close to him. You didn't want to display any weakness. And so Jesus comes along, and he just completely flips the script. In John Dickens' book, uh, Humilitas, he's an ancient historian, and he writes, one of the questions that ancient historians ask is, what happens when you go into the Roman Empire, power is all important, and you want strong leaders. And then suddenly you come out with this idea that actually serving and being humble is a good thing. And he said, you know, we all come to the same conclusion. It's Jesus that changes our understanding of how we ought to carry ourselves with power. We could look at that. We could look at other things here. Look at the fact that in a crisis, he's about to be killed. He knows he's about to be killed. Jesus is thoughtful and serving other people. I mean, we live in a moment when we got all these charges of microaggression and nobody can handle any kind of pressure. And we got all the Jesus is the anti-snowflake, right? I mean, he's, he is resilient. He's in the midst of a crisis. And he's continuing to think about other people and to serve. There's a lot of things that we could look at here. Let's not miss the main point. <laughs> Jesus says, you have seen the example I have set. Now go follow it. So, look, Jesus is more than an example. Right? He, is, he is God. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is King. Jesus is more than just an example, but he's not less than an example. And he says, very specifically, <laughs> follow my example. Wash the feet of others. Use the power that you have for the benefit of other people. Use the power that you have for the benefit of other people. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that we uh, hold our power. We often uh, hold our power um, secretly. We often, um, we often want to steward our power for ourselves. We acknowledge the, uh, the, the shocking uh, ways that Jesus is serving others in very unpleasant ways. And we pray that uh, we would have eyes to see those opportunities that we're given to serve others as well. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.